Hello and welcome to A World to Win, a podcast from Tribune magazine. I'm Grace Blakely, bringing you your weekly dose of socialist news, theory and action from around the world. This week, I speak to David Wengrow, Professor of Comparative Archaeology at University College London. He's the author of a brilliant new book, The Dawn of Everything, which he wrote with my late dear friend David Graeber. We have an episode from last year dedicated to David's memory, so I'd encourage listeners to check that out after this episode. Today, David Wengrow and I talk about literally everything, human history, human nature and how to change the world. Thank you so much to all our amazing patrons who make this show possible. If you want access to the full hour-long episode of this show, as well as full-length interviews with previous guests like Naomi Klein and Dr. Cornell West, support us at patreon.com slash a world to win pod. There's a link in the description. If you want to support the show in another way, please give us a rating on iTunes to keep us up in the charts and share your favourite episodes on social media, tagging at a world to win pod on Twitter, Facebook and Instagram. Another big thank you to Reverend and the Makers, who've let us use their track Heavyweight Champion of the World as our intro and outro music. And now here is David Wengro on why the narrative we have about human history is so wrong. Hello, David, and thank you so much for joining me on this episode of A World to Win. How are you today? Um, all right. Good morning, Grace. I'm Good morning. Forward to, um, <laughs> looking forward to talking to you about this book, which I think is going to be quite different from all the other conversations I've had. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> I am also extremely excited to talk to you about this book because, yeah, I personally found it difficult to put down. And as I was just saying, I think it is very important to get it into as many hands as possible. So listeners, please do go out and buy the book. We will put a link in the description. And yeah, I mean, should we just start by talking about, I suppose, the the view of history that you're trying to puncture? What is the current kind of big picture of history? Um, mm. And where did that come from? Mm. The current big picture, I guess, um, that we want to question is the one that has come to underpin writing on a whole range of different topics, not just inequality, but you pick up a a broad survey book on anything ranging from human relationships to the earth system or human value systems, the effects of war and epidemics, they're all underpinned by an essentially very simple scheme or model of what it means to be human and what the limits are to human capacities. And that's rooted in a narrative. It's actually a kind of meta-narrative. And its structure is relatively simple, which in itself is quite revealing of the fact that it it is basically a myth. And in essence, it goes like this. Um, Human societies began at very small scales in pre-agricultural societies, so societies of hunters, foragers and fishers, which were egalitarian in their social relations and in their attitudes which had very few material possessions, and by virtue of that, they could be egalitarian. And this was the kind of default state um, of human societies for most of our history and most of our evolutionary past. It's supposed to be what we're hardwired uh, to do and how we're supposed to behave towards each other. But then various things happened that changed all of that. And uh, the ones that are usually evoked uh, begin with the origins of agriculture, which in most sort of 
big history books is kind of what sets history in motion. So before agriculture, in essence, nothing really happens. Or if things do happen or are seen to be happening, they're not really seen to have any major structural implications for the way that humans organize themselves. Agriculture in the traditional story, the the one that we're calling essentially a myth or a fable, is what changes all of that and sets human societies on a course to not just inequality, but also demographic growth, uh, private property, territoriality, and eventually this leads to the emergence of cities and the state. So the essence of the story is that smallness of scale uh, lends itself to egalitarian relations, Uh, largeness of scale lends itself to complexity, including technological complexity and the extraction of resources uh, on a massive scale from the environment, but also implies hierarchy and the need for central institutions to manage flows of goods and flows of information. Uh, It allows certain people to do wonderful things like make scientific discoveries and arts and philosophy and so on, but always at the price of a, a loss of those basic freedoms which uh, we are supposed to have begun with uh, as a as a species that original state of equality um so that in essence uh, is the kind of grand structure of history that i think broadly we're, we're all kind of educated into but which also underpins some otherwise very sophisticated books books by academics with full credentials in their fields, books which are very rigorously researched, often full of careful statistical analyses. But you scratch away at the surface and underneath it, you find that structure of uh, an original state of equality, a kind of fall from grace into a state of inequality, uh, and this idea that as civilization expands and becomes more productive and more sophisticated, we also inevitably lose our freedoms. And this is what we seek to question in uh, the book that I wrote with David Graeber, The Dawn of Everything. What I think is quite interesting about you taking this view of history apart is that usually when you get a kind of progressive analysis, that view of, I don't know, original innocence or harmony Mm. is something that is seen as, you know, positive, i.e. naturally in inverted commas, human beings exist in this kind of cooperative, happy, joyful, mm-hmm. simple state of nature, almost kind of against the the Hobbesian view that you outline as well mm. in the book. Mm. Why do you think that that view that, you know, there's this kind of inherent innocence in humanity that if we could just kind of, I don't know, dismantle society, we could get back to? Why is it worth mm. actually dismantling that and looking a little bit more into, into the complexity of um, of human history. Well, the the version of that original state of humanity that that you've just given, I think, is closer to the kind of thing you might have found in Rousseau or some early Enlightenment treatise than it is to what you'll find in today's studies of evolutionary. Um, anthropology, for example, you can still find those very simplistic ideas of, you know, original innocence in some of the the kind of general pop science books, um, and even in some serious books. But actually, the, the argument from evolutionary anthropology about humanity's originally egalitarian instincts is a little bit more complicated and and a little bit more interesting. And it leads back into your question of why it's important to get beyond it. If humans 
were actually always these politically imaginative, creative uh, kinds of creatures, then let's actually look at the evidence as far back as it takes us from my field of archaeology um, and see what that looks like. For example, you see uh, as far back as 30 or 40,000 years ago, so we're getting back into the last ice age now, you see evidence for all kinds of interesting things going on with burials. So here we are in the realm of human ritual behavior and ceremonial behavior, and we see individuals, often very striking individuals. We can actually tell from their physical remains that these were people who were physically very distinctive and might even be regarded as uh, anomalous uh, in in their own societies, people with congenital uh, conditions or extraordinarily tall or short or whatever it may be. And of course, that's just the physical remains. But these individuals um, are often buried like princes and princesses, huge amounts of, of wealth and uh, regalia and fancy weaponry, but it's just the burials. So what's going on there? People are setting up other people in statuses uh, which are uh, exceptionally uh, different from what their everyday lives must have been, but they only seem to be doing it within very confined contexts. And what's interesting about a lot of these ritual sites where you find the burials is that they form part of a kind of seasonal round of people moving and aggregating and dispersing in the landscape. Archaeological science is very, very good these days at reconstructing, even in that level of detail, how people were actually engaging with uh, with ancient landscapes. And many of these places are, um, well, they're in the sort of tundra zone on the edge of what then would have been glacial Europe. So these are highly seasonal environments where people will come together for very intense periods of social interaction, including ceremonies and rituals, probably marriages as well as funerals, often in concert with the seasonal migration of big game animals, so woolly mammoth, whatever it may be, deer, uh, and so on. But then they'll disperse off again into much smaller groups. And anthropologically, this is often associated with a a change of political structure or even legal and moral structures. So people are flipping their social systems with the seasons. What I'm trying to give you a picture of here is, is just how much richer and more interesting the real evidence for hunter-gatherer life before agriculture was than you tend to get in the standard evolutionary histories. And actually, it confirms what the evolutionary biologists and anthropologists are saying, which is that we've always been a rather politically playful and experimental species. And there's no reason to believe that it was only with the invention of agriculture that we actually began to use those capacities. You mentioned that this this kind of older view of history can be traced back to the Enlightenment. Hmm. What exactly was it about the Enlightenment that led to the emergence and kind of consolidation of this particular view of history? What thinkers was associated with Hmm. and what were the kind of political groundings of, of that view? Well, if you if we look at what is generally meant by the Enlightenment, it's it's a story about Europe, right? It's a story about a particular philosophical turn in European um, society, and in many ways, it's a paradoxical turn. I was just leafing through um, 
what I think is still one of the best books on the Enlightenment by Roy Porter, where he makes his usual case that there was such a thing as the English Enlightenment, not just the uh, the Scottish Enlightenment and the French Enlightenment, but you know, something distinctively English about the Enlightenment. And just flicking through the chapters, I mean, it's a brilliant book, but you suddenly realise how odd some of it is. For example, the idea that it is virtuous to seek happiness, but it's also virtuous at the same time to seek material gain and profit. This is actually kind of, you know, it's a bit peculiar. So, you know, you're supposed to outcompete and outdo all of your friends and neighbours, um, but at the same time, everyone's supposed to be happy. I mean, it's just a bit strange. And you actually start to realise that what we call the Enlightenment is is really a kind of coming together or concatenation of lots of different currents uh, of thought. And the argument, one of the arguments that we found ourselves making in order to understand what you refer to, the, the origins of this whole way of looking at human history, is how much those currents actually extend beyond the context of Europe and of European thinkers. So actually we got very interested in the ways in which it first became um, interesting and acceptable to European intellectuals to cast human history in that way. There's a story about the origins of inequality. And oddly enough, this actually led us um, quite deep into encounters between European colonists and indigenous societies in the Americas, which is where we argue in the book, um, many of these ideas of freedom and equality actually came from, which is something that many Enlightenment writers themselves claim, that they're getting these ideas, these ideas are inspired by the example of Native American societies. But in the process, you know, it's never just a, a direct transposition of ideas. It's never just a direct translation in the same way that we know Europeans adopted tobacco smoking and caffeinated beverages from North America, um, but they didn't quite do it the same way. It's the same with ideas. And in the book, we try to reconstruct uh, something of those original uh, intellectual and social encounters and show how indigenous ideas about freedom and social freedoms became kind of translated into a discussion about equality and inequality. And we think this has a lot to do with European notions of property and law, where it was very, very difficult for Europeans then, as now, actually, in our particular tradition of legal thought, to conceive of freedoms other than as personal freedoms based on ownership which is actually something that seems to have been pretty alien to many of the societies uh, in North America um, where they encountered these ideas. Um, that's not to say that notions of egalitarianism and notions of freedom were somehow absent completely from uh, European civilization before the encounter with Americas. That would be a very naive thing to claim. But it wasn't assumed as a matter of default until roughly the 18th century, that humanity had everywhere existed in some primordial state of equality. That's the new factor. I've noticed in, in some reactions to the book, um, particularly medieval historians getting upset that we don't talk about the levelers and 
<laughs> or even the Reformation, I'm, I'm not sure, but it's slightly missing the point. We're not arguing that egalitarianism was somehow completely alien to the fabric of European societies before the 18th century, but it was certainly always um, a minority uh, pursuit. Um, and uh, it's specifically about uh, this idea that um, one can simply assume that equality was the original state. That's the new sort of factor that gets introduced in the 18th century. And that, we argue, does arise out of that encounter uh, with the Americas. There's loads I want to talk to you about this particular moment of encounter between Europe and American people um, and, and what came out of that. But I just want to ask you a few more questions quickly about, to kind of put it in quite crude terms, why... Europe comes out of your account as being so, in inverted commas, weird. Because a lot of kind of European thought and enlightenment thought is structured upon this idea that, you know, European civilization is is kind of natural or is the apex of, mm. uh, of human achievement. And you kind of flip that on its head with discussions about how, you know, Europeans captured by indigenous mm, folk mm, didn't want to go home and, and mm. uh, indigenous folk captured by Europeans did want to go home. Mm. Um, there's a kind of, you know... I was reading it thinking there's a danger that you could just flip this narrative on its head and actually say mm. it's the rest of the world that's normal and it's Europe that's weird. I'm interested, I suppose, in the kind of particular conditions in Europe that led to what you're talking about, which is this um, particular way of understanding freedom and equality, which centers around property. Yeah. Now, a lot of the kind of earlier work on, say, like, you know, the emergence of the state in Europe focuses on how you've got warring kingdoms lots of people crowded into one particular space which mm. you know means that ideas around property and territory and control of populations become much more important what's mm -hmm. your view on why mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. the average european at that time lived so differently from the average person in in you know america if that isn't too kind of basic a question or broad no, question. No, not at all i think it's a great question and i think the mistake that's often made is that people compare things that are not actually going on at the same time that are not contemporaneous i think it's a great idea and actually we conclude the book partly by drawing comparisons between contemporaneous european societies and indigenous north american societies um, in the 17th century. But it strikes me as actually pretty weird in itself to argue that something like democracy is a kind of deeply rooted trait of European societies. I mean, mm. if you look at the history of European societies, just as you've described, it's pretty hard to find any period <laughs> up until the more recent one, uh, very recent ones, um, when you have uh, democracy. It's really a very long history, largely of, of monarchy and dynastic feuding, feudal, uh, feuding kingdoms, feudal feuding kingdoms. <laughs> but also, you know, our particular notion of democracy is um, in some ways a bit peculiar. It's, uh, it's very different from the ancient Greek uh, notion, which did not uh, actually involve things like uh, elections. Actually, the Greeks... Um, viewed elections as the aristocratic mode of selecting leaders, not as the democratic mode, which was done by random lottery or sortition. So our particular version of democracy, which is more like a sports contest where, you know, we put up these individuals who are uh, either comical or affable or supposed to represent something, the rest of us turn 
largely into to spectators unless we're party activists or whatever. But it tends to end up being a competition of winners and losers. And that that is not actually historically what many uh, other democracies went towards, which was something more along the lines of participatory democracy. So I think it's very important, especially if you're talking about psychological traits, to be clear about these terms and what they do and don't um, mean. Um, So I think partly my answer to your question is that perhaps we have to view European societies as a lot more permeable um, than we generally do, not as Mm. this kind of historically, hermetically sealed thing. Uh, for example, we, you know, we make the point in the book that European, modern European nation states in many ways seem to have been inspired by the example of China. Uh, mm. You have uh, major figures uh, like Leibniz in Hanover uh, explicitly arguing that uh, uh, what European countries really ought to do is uh, have a national curriculum and uh, linguistic standardization and a system of formal examinations by which anybody can, in theory, enter the bureaucracy. And you end up with, um, and, and he's, you know, he's using China as the model for this. We should emulate Chinese models of statecraft. Is it entirely coincidental that Europe then does do exactly that? <laughs> Probably not. So when we talk about Europe, I think we have to, to take into account that at least uh, from the um, late 15th, 16th century onwards, Europe is involved in a constant flow of, of, of really quite shocking and radical encounters with African societies, uh, uh, Asian societies, and indeed the Americas. And, and it's really this, this cross-current of influences that produces what we've come to call the Enlightenment. I think it takes a very conscious effort to kind of purify that history and turn it solely into a story about things happening, you know, on the physical territory of the European continent. You have to ignore uh, an awful lot of uh, other things going on on a much more global scale in order to do that. So I think partly the problem is, is with the question and with our idea that there was such a thing actually, as Europe mm. at that time, rather than all of these little principalities with, with all of their different complex engagements with a whole range of other societies. And once you accept that, it becomes very important to understand which societies exactly they were interacting with and what those other non-European societies brought to the table. Otherwise, it just becomes irrelevant. You know, you end up with these binaries of you know, weird European societies and everybody else um, which is kind of demeaning to every other culture on earth because it mm. implies that they're all roughly the same and don't really have anything or didn't really have anything distinctive to add to the, um, the mixing pot of ideas. So actually we do argue that uh, at least certain aspects of what we've come to regard as enlightenment thought, particularly with regard to notions of freedom and equality, um, do owe a debt to indigenous philosophies, particularly uh, among Iroquoian and Algonquin-speaking groups around what's now the Great Lakes region of Canada, down into upstate New York. And we can even identify some of the individual thinkers and sort of leading leading political figures of of nations like the Wendat Nation, which today has its centre in Quebec, uh, who played a a formative role in this. So... 
Let's talk now a little bit about the encounters between these indigenous thinkers and European thinkers, colonizers, fighters, mm. intellectuals. Why were these interactions so important? And I suppose, you know, it, there's, mm. you cover so much ground um, about about these interactions in the book and it's just it makes a fascinating reading but I guess to kind of try and narrow it down what would be some of the most interesting and thought-provoking mm -hmm. divides or disagreements or just kind of um mm. you know different ways of looking at the world that emerged from them mm -hmm. well um what we try to do in chapter two of the book is really distill uh, the essence of what we call the indigenous critique of European civilization, which we know through a whole range of different um, uh, written accounts from the 17th uh, into the early 18th century. Some of them are by missionaries like the, uh, the Jesuit relations. There are more than 70 volumes of this with often quite detailed observations of criticisms that the, the locals are aiming at French colonists. Uh, they're observing uh, how Europeans behave towards each other. And these criticisms are remarkably consistent. They focus around money, Europeans' uh, obsession with money, as, the, uh, as the, the indigenous observers saw it, uh, the effects of money on, on the way that Europeans interact with each other, their apparent willingness to allow their own people to fall through the cracks. So uh, native people were often scandalized by the levels of homelessness and poverty in European settlements. And of course, let's remember that representatives of indigenous nations did travel to Europe. You know, they saw the major cities of Paris and, and London and other centers of the time. And there's also a sort of fascination with the way that Europeans form social ranks and on the one hand are always competing to outdo each other but on the other hand seem perfectly happy to just take orders all the time on the basis of somebody's rank or status so you know the way we're deferring to each other all the time all of these kind of critical observations there are other observations about sexual practices um, marriage and divorce uh, hygiene and health and all sorts of things which come through the Jesuit relations and other sources. And these were very, very widely read in European intellectual literary circles at the time. And perhaps even more popular than the missionary relations were the so-called dialogues. So people, leading enlightenment thinkers, most of them wrote a dialogue with an indigenous, or what they would have called at the time, uh, a wise savage and the dialogue some people point out that you know these are based on sort of greco-roman precedents and it's a kind of standard literary format for criticizing one's own society in other words you have the, uh, the european uh, voicing uh, a kind of standard view of their own society and the indigenous interlocutor comes back with all the criticisms and Often that indigenous interlocutor is clearly a, a fantasy character. So it may be a, an Inca princess uh, or a, a, a Persian uh, or a, a Tahitian or whatever it may be. But when we traced this whole genre back to its origins, we found something very interesting. And this really comes down to uh, uh, an episode of history that was not uh, imaginary. It really happened. Um, and it's a series of encounters between French colonists 
and um, mainly representatives of the Huron-Wendat nation uh, in precisely that area I was talking about, uh, sort of Great Lakes region uh, east to Montreal. And the central figure in all this um, was an individual who went by many names, but the most commonly used seems to have been uh, Kandirog, uh, who was a leading figure of the Wendat nation. Uh, he was a politician. He was a warrior. He was a diplomat. He was involved for decades in trying to broker uh, peace deals between his own uh, people and other uh, Iroquoian societies, as well as trying to play off the French and the English and the, the Dutch colonists against each other. Hugely influential and important man, who we know from various different accounts, um, was also basically a genius. You know, people would meet him and just sort of come away completely staggered and right, right, I've just met the most incredible guy. Uh, he's just so eloquent and articulate and he was famous for, for his oratory skills to the extent that Kandiaronk would be invited on a regular basis to the, uh, the home of the then uh, governor of that part of what Europeans called New France um, for debating contests where they would argue out um, all of these issues that later on uh, became central themes of Enlightenment debate and Enlightenment discourse. But all of this is happening really before uh, what we tend to think of as the origins of, of the Enlightenment. Uh, so we're in the 17th century here, um, and we're in the Americas. And in this particular case, there were two Frenchmen um, who made it their business to actually record uh, a lot of these discussions. One was the actual governor general of the time, whose name was Frontignac, who participated himself in these debates. And the other was a, a much more minor uh, French nobleman uh, called the Baron, who went by the name Baron Lahontan, who ended up, uh, he got sort of uh, evicted from the, the Americas. He lost his job, fell out of favor with the governor, ended up as a sort of penniless vagrant on the streets of Amsterdam, but then published his uh, recollections uh, or adaptations, shall we say, of these dialogues in 1703, I think, under the title Curious Dialogues with a Savage of Good Sense Who Has Travelled. And these books took off like wildfire. I mean, Europe became obsessed with them. And all of these other imitations that I'm talking about drew from them. Now, the important thing about Laontan's book um, is that the dialogues there are with a character called Adario. Adario is Candiaronk, and we have various corroborating sources for this. Actually, oddly enough, including Leibniz, because when um, uh, Laurentin uh, started getting back on his feet financially and socially, he was actually welcomed into courtly circles again, and he went to Hanover and became a great friend of Leibniz. And there's actually a letter from Leibniz to somebody else, uh, and they're all obsessed with Laurentin's uh, book and his dialogues with the Dario. And in the letter, Leibniz just casually points out to his friends, he says, you know, I've talked to Laurentin about this and uh, this Dario is, uh, it's a real person. You know, he actually, he actually exists. And um, this is very important because it's from Laurentin's writings that other Enlightenment writers of such dialogues draw the substance of their critique of European civilization. And the key one seems to be uh, Graffini's letters from a Peruvian woman. In that case, the Peruvian woman is a fictitious Inca princess by the name of Zelia, um, who mounts many of the, the same arguments, says the same kind of things that Candiaronk would have said in his observations about Europe. And Graffini circulates a draft of her 
book to her sort of inner circle, among whom is the uh, economist, who's then quite young, I think, in his 20s, Anne-Robert Thiergaud. Now, this is very important because Thiergaud is the one who really gives us our modern notion of world history as a sequence of modes of production or modes of livelihood. This is where it begins. And it's a crucial moment because he reads Graffini's draft, where you have the Inca princess leveling all of these criticisms at European societies, saying, well, why can't we have uh, uh, the kind of uh, uh, freedoms of my, my, my native society? Never mind that we're large and complex and sophisticated. Perhaps we can do away with monarchy. Perhaps we, we don't have to live in the way of money the way we do. Perhaps it's not necessary to have such uh, disparities of, of wealth and opportunity. Perhaps we can be free. Perhaps women can have uh, freedoms to divorce and so on. Anyway, Thiergaud uh, responds very positively. How could you possibly be against uh, such things? But remember, we're just a few decades away here from the French Revolution. Um, And he tries gently, we actually have the correspondence, he tries gently to move Graffini away from this position towards a more sort of centrist one, so that she changes the ending of the book and the Inca princess comes around to realize that perhaps she's being just a bit naive. And yes, you know, we can do better, but it's really a matter of tinkering around the edges and you can't really achieve the sort of structural change that she's imagining in a large, complex, technologically sophisticated society like uh, like France of, of the day, as Tilgos saw it. And Graffini uh, ignores him completely. She publishes the book exactly as she originally intended and over the next few years, Tilgo kind of gets his um, his revenge. Uh, this is when he publishes his important essays, uh, which become incredibly influential on people like Adam Smith, his essays on universal history. And he performs a kind of intellectual counter thrust there, which I think in many ways we're still living with. And the move he makes is roughly this. He says that non-European societies... Yes, uh, they can have these uh, social freedoms, they can have these forms of equality, but it's not because they are in any way models for us. It's not because they're superior to us or ahead of us in, in any way. It's actually because they're inferior to us. And what he means here by inferior is simple, culturally simple, technologically backward, in essence, primitive. And this is where you first get the introduction to European thought of that kind of stage-like notion of history, where suddenly it becomes very important whether people are hunter-gatherers as opposed to farmers, as opposed to industrial or commercial civilization. And it's all set up as a kind of ladder of progression, so that figures, contemporaneous figures, co-evil figures like Kandirog, get relegated to the bottom of an evolutionary ladder where they can spout off as much as they like about freedom, gender equality, and so on. But it all belongs to some kind of distant, primordial age of humanity. There's no way it could actually form a a meaningful critique of how people in so-called modern societies comport and conduct themselves. So it's, it's, it's a very clever move. And I think in many ways, uh, we're still kind of stuck in that mode of thinking when you know when people talk about hunter gatherers as having essentially one or two possible forms of social life we're basically recreating the um, the frame of thought that Tilgo came up with explicitly as a 
a riposte, you know, a counter uh, reaction against this uh, very powerful indigenous critique of European civilization that was becoming very influential in European circles at that time. Would it be too far to suggest that, paradoxically, the success of the indigenous critique within European society became as a result of this kind of counter-reaction from those who wanted to basically preserve the status quo, preserve the legitimacy of the status quo, became the kind of the foundation of Orientalism, racism, the kind of Europe versus everywhere else uh, view of the Mm. world? Well, it's interesting because a lot of what I'm talking about um, is very easy to confuse with um, what's often referred to as... uh, sort of trope of the noble savage. And this is a standard um, reaction to the kind of thing I'm talking about is, oh, you're romanticizing uh, non-Western people. And it's very important to be clear about this. When you read these early colonial accounts, you can't really find the idea of the noble savage. If Europeans refer at all to nobility, it's usually something to do with men going out hunting, which they regarded as somehow sort of inherently aristocratic or something. But there is no uh, kind of uniform blanket positive appraisal of indigenous people in these early colonial accounts. Actually, they're often very negative and critical, or at best uh, ambivalent. And what's interesting in relation to what you're talking about, Grace, which is, um, you know, how this ties in with racism and eugenics and that kind of thing, is that really this idea of the noble savage is only introduced later on in the 19th century. And it's actually introduced by racial theorists, really by a clique uh, of, uh, of scientists who kind of became very prevalent in, in the British ethnological society at that time, and who have figured out that this is a great way of basically cutting short any consideration of the possibility that that one might learn something from the example of indigenous peoples. Um, say, oh, you're romanticizing. Now, today we view that as a um, almost a kind of positive <laughs> perspective. It's like one mustn't romanticize the other. Otherwise, you, yes, you know, you're you're doing all the things that Edward Said uh, warned us against in in Orientalism. You know, setting up a, uh, another culture as a kind of paragon or as demonic, but you know, basically not treating people as they are. But initially, it was actually the opposite. It, it, it was really a way of dismissing any possibility that um, European systems of thought might have been influenced in some way uh, by other systems of, uh, of thought. And I think there is a clear relationship between the kind of stage-like view of history that Turgot and then Adam Smith uh, introduce and the kind of biological racism uh, and eugenicism that gets entrenched subsequently uh, in Europe. It's actually what we, we refer to as uh, not so much the myth of the noble savage, but what we call the myth of the stupid savage, you know, the idea that that, uh, there are whole uh, groups of people out there, including our own prehistoric ancestors, who were somehow incapable of of the kind of reflective behavior that we just take for granted among ourselves. In other words, just casting whole civilizations or whole epochs of history uh, in a very strange way that, that turns people into sort of cardboard cutouts. 
if we're kind of moving beyond this pretty crude um, categorization of, of peoples into different, you know, psychological profiles based on race or where they come from or whatever, mm-hmm. what can we then learn about something called, in inverted commas, human nature? And how some of these basic human traits are translated into or manifested in different kinds of social orders and how those social orders then come to affect our nature. Well, this really, I think these kind of questions uh, themselves have an interesting history, which comes out of um, what was called natural law theory. So this also is um, illustrates uh, the point I was trying to make earlier that it's it's a mistake to try and view these um, intellectual developments as happening just within a European context, because really these debates about natural law theory or what humans are essentially like simply by virtue of being human, human nature, if you like, they actually arise in a very specific context, which is. Um, the colonization of um, not just the Americas, but other parts of the world, where often the colonizers, be they Spanish or Portuguese or English, were encountering people who clearly had never had any exposure to Christianity. So they couldn't even be called pagans properly because they hadn't had the opportunity to reject Christ or even think about it. And it's out of those the kind of legal debates that then ensue about, well, we can't treat them as infidels, uh, so what are they? <laughs> they seem to be quite like us, but how do we classify them? And this is what gives rise in the um, 17th century to uh, debates about, well, what is humanity simply by virtue of being human? What would we have been like in a so-called state of nature? And... Um, we're still asking those kinds of questions. You know, when people like, uh, uh, I don't know, I think Rutger Bregman had a book called Humankind, which argues that we are innately more uh, altruistic um, than we are competitive. Or when somebody else argues that we are innately warlike and aggressive, uh, and therefore, you know, we can we can make certain claims about the inevitability of a certain form of capitalism or whatever it may be. Those are the sort of ideas that we are innately one thing or another, I think are still rooted in what are essentially kind of legalistic, actually also theological ideas. There's no reason to believe that we're innately anything. Actually, as far back as the evidence takes us uh, in terms of uh, archaeology, um, what we see is human beings really playing around and experimenting and presumably making exactly the kind of moral, ethical choices we like to credit ourselves with today um, between various alternatives. There is no kind of uh, period of um, prolonged warfare and violence, uh, but there's also no prolonged period of, of peace. These things come and go in the archaeological record. We have examples of people setting up very hierarchical societies and then abandoning them or switching between them uh, on a seasonal basis, like I mentioned earlier. In other words, if there's anything that makes us human, or that one could say is our nature as a species, it's precisely that capacity to experiment, you know, try things on for size. So even the uh, 
the transitions that we've been taught to see uh, as kind of traps or cages, like, oh, you know, inventing agriculture, that must have trapped us into relations of private property, territoriality, warfare, inequality, and so on. Actually, when you look at the modern evidence, and, and there's a huge amount of it now flooding in from every corner of the world, that's not what you see at all. What you see with the, the first adoption of crops and animals are societies kind of playfully tinkering with the possibilities, moving in and out of, of, of different ecologies, cultivating, but mixing that up with hunting and fishing and gathering. And this, this kind of what we call play farming can go on for thousands of years. And it's much the same when cities appear. They don't just appear in one form. You know, there's no evolutionary process whereby people suddenly come together in groups of densely populated societies over a certain threshold, and everything falls into a certain pattern, which is usually assumed to be a hierarchical pattern where you have to set up cadres of kings, priests, and officials. To That's simply not how it happens. Actually, one thing that we found out is that a surprising number of the, the earliest documented cities, not all of them, perhaps not even half of them, but a surprising number, are organized in various quite egalitarian ways, different forms of egalitarianism. Some of them seem to be very much focused on the freedom of individuals and, and households to express themselves. Uh, others seem to be more interested in some idea of equality based on uniformity or sameness. So this whole question of human history and human capacities, I think, becomes fundamental. And if we keep repeating bad histories, baseless histories, mythical histories that reinforce this sense of paralysis, that can't possibly be helpful. David, I have about a million more questions that I wanted to ask you, but I didn't manage to get to half of them. So I'm going to have to get you back on the show to ask the rest of them because we haven't even covered a slither of the big questions that you cover in the book. So oh. I would very much encourage readers to go out and buy it. I, I want to know what they are. Well, we'll have to talk about it another time. We'll have to, I'll have to get you on again. <laughs> okay. Uh, but thank you so much for joining me today. It's been a really fascinating conversation. Thanks very much. 